Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, thank you. Great song. Well, good morning. Um, great, to, great to be with you again this morning. Um, uh, looking forward to, to what the Lord has for us. Um, this morning we're going to be uh, taking the Lord's Supper, and it is going to be the first, uh, my first time uh, officiating the Lord's Supper uh, as pastor of Cottondale Baptist Church, so if it's a little different than you're used to, please forgive me, but um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine, it's going to be good, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And so in, in, view of, in view of this, I've decided to do um, a hopefully brief message on, um, on what is the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? But before we begin, uh, let's pray together. Father, you're kind to us. We gather today to worship you, and this morning we take some time uh, to uh, observe the, the specific act of worship that you have given and instituted to your church. Lord Jesus, we said this do in remembrance of me. And so uh, this morning... As every morning, we remember you, Lord, and what you've done for us. So help us, I pray, to understand what this ordinance is. And I pray that we would observe it in our hearts with all the weight and the gravity that it deserves as worship of our crucified and risen King. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. So, what is the Lord's Supper? What's it for? Why did Jesus give it? How should we do it? Um, who can take the Lord's Supper? Can anybody take it? Any Christian? How does, it, how does the Lord's Supper relate to church membership? How old must the person be? Do they need to be baptized first? You know, if you look throughout the history of the church, you'll find that these questions have been quite controversial. And today, for better, but probably I think for worse, uh, we don't often... Uh, weigh these questions uh, as heavily as we should. Uh, in, the, in the past Christians, especially past Protestant Christians, have uh, thought very, very carefully about the practice, especially Baptists, by the way, thought very, very carefully about the practice of the ordinances. And in fact, that's what separates Baptists from just about everyone else is uh, uh, rather specific ways in which historically and theologically we have viewed the practice practices of the ordinances to be. I'm not going to answer all these questions today. <laughs> but what I am going to do is take six points, six points that I pulled from a book called Baptist Foundations. Um, it's a good book. It, it's, pro it's probably written for a seminary classroom, but if you're eager to, to read it, 
you will come out more Baptist than you ever wanted to be if you, if you read this book. But I'm taking six points from this book about what is the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to try to defend these points and explain them to you. But first, um, our text, Luke chapter 22. So if you're able and willing, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on... I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. The word of God. You may be seated. So, six points concerning what is the Lord's Supper. Six points concerning what is the Lord's Supper. Point number one, the Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. Look at verse 15. Uh, He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, this Passover with you uh, before I suffer. So, Jesus took the Passover, probably the most recognizable and central feast celebration of the Jews. And, and notice in our passage, he, he calls it a Passover meal, but then he says, this do in remembrance of me. In other words, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is kind of reinstituting the Lord's Supper. He's reconsecrating, he's re-giving it, if you would. Think of the authority I think we often pass over this. Think of the authority of what Jesus is doing. He is taking the central feast of the Lord's, of the central feast of, and celebration of the Jews, and he's saying, I'm changing it to be about me. It was a Passover meal. What was the Passover? Israel was in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses to free his people from bondage. Uh, God gives ten plagues, the last plague of which being the sending the angel of death to strike down the firstborn male in every single home. And what's interesting is that if you, <laughs> it's easy to miss if you don't read it carefully. It's clear uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, that the plague, this final plague, was, would strike every home. 
not just the Egyptians. Other plagues just struck the Egyptians, but it's clear that this plague, if the Jews did not obey the command, did not trust in God enough, as it were, to keep his, to keep, uh, his institution, uh, to follow his instructions, if a Jewish home did not slay the Passover lamb, their house would be struck as well, not just the Egyptians, from the destroying angel of the Lord. And so it's clear here that this plague is a little bit different. It's not just judging the Egyptians for their idolatry, but it is giving a universal accountability, Egyptian and Hebrew alike, that if you do not trust and follow and obey and love and serve the one true God, you will be struck by the Lord. And so the Passover was not just saving them, was not, was not just saving them from uh, the Egyptians. The Passover was saving the Hebrews from God. Because they too would be struck down if they didn't trust and obey the Lord. So how would they be spared? What would they have to do? They had to take a spotless lamb. A spotless lamb. And you had to bring it into your home for four days, just enough to be friends with it. Seriously. And then, and then you had to kill it. And you had to take the blood, and you had to put it all over the front of your house. And you had to eat it. You had to consume it. And you couldn't, none of it, all of it uh, had to be consumed. None of it could be left over. It had to be totally consumed. If there was any left over, you had to burn it. Exodus chapter 12 verse 13 says this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So by the pa- so think about it. We often think of the Exodus and the Passover as the means of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, which of course it was, but it was much more than that. He was they were being saved from idolatry and they were being saved from God whose wrath would burn against those who worship false gods, even them. And so their deliverance comes through judgment. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What do you think the Jews would, under, would have understood John the Baptist was saying when Jesus come by the river Jordan and John the Baptist said, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ and Paul understand that the Lord's Supper takes up and fulfills what the Passover pointed to. In other words, as great a deliverance that the Passover was for the Hebrews, it was not great enough. They needed an even greater deliverance, not from Egypt, but from their sin. And God has done this 
through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the innocent, spotless lamb who was slain. And when we take of the Lord's Supper, we are, as it were, participating, acknowledging that without him, God would not pass over us. That without him, we would face the wrath of God in our sin. But not because of what we've done, not because of anything we could do or ever do, but by the sheer grace and mercy of God. If God looks on you and sees the blood of Jesus Christ on your heart, he passes over you. And that's what we remember on the Lord's Supper. Do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. So number one, the Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. Number two, the Lord's Supper is symbolic. The Lord's Supper is symbolic. Jesus said, verse 19, this is my body which is given for you. You know... If, if you know about the differences of beliefs, this is a huge difference, huge difference between the understandings of Catholics and Protestants in general. And even there's, there's a, a pretty good bit of, uh, bit of difference between some Protestants, uh, like Lutherans, for example, have uh, uh, a much more literal reading than we would. And though Catholics definitely have the most literal reading, that is that the Catholics believe in the doctrine of what's called transubstantiation. They believe that when the priest prays the, the, the prayer of consecration uh, over the elements, that the actual substance of the bread and the wine actually changes to the, to the literal body and blood of Jesus. That is, even though the elements still in appearance look like bread and wine, in actual substance, they are, are the body and the blood of Jesus. So that when you partake of the Mass, if you're Catholic, you believe you're actually eating the flesh of Christ. Actually eating, drinking the blood of Christ. And this obviously explains why they hold the, the Eucharist, as they call it, which just means thanksgiving in, in such high regard. Uh, but... I will argue today that this interpretation fails to see that Jesus, he clearly intended his words to be symbolic. He wasn't saying that this is, is my actual body. He was saying this bread represents my body. How do we know that? Because he lifted it up and he broke it. In other words, he's saying that this bread represents my body and as I break it, it's representing my body being broken. It's a representation. It's symbolic. And I think this interpretation is especially confirmed in verse 20, where uh, Jesus says, Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, uh, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I think it's quite clear that when Jesus is holding up the cup, he is not saying that the cup is literally the new covenant. Because we would really want that cup. In fact, lots of people look for that cup for a long time, the Holy Grail, right? But he's not saying the cup is literally the new covenant. Obviously not. He's saying that the cup represents the new covenant. It's symbolic of the new covenant. It is 
it, it is symbolic of his death, uh, of his atoning death, which, which ushers in the new covenant. So, in Christ, by his, by his uh, shedding of his blood, we are forgiven of our sins. The Holy Spirit is outpoured among us, and we are ushered into the people of God through what Christ has done for us, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The old covenant has passed away. The new covenant in Christ has come. And so we take the Lord's Supper as a symbol of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So the Lord's Supper then, it's not, it's not some kind of magical feast, but it is an awe-filled symbol of remembrance. When we contemplate Jesus Christ's body being broken for us, when we contemplate his blood being shed for us, the essence, the heart, the radical core of Christianity. And so I don't think it diminishes the Lord's Supper by calling it symbolic. But I think it just recognizes what Jesus taught, that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake of it with awe and reverence and remembrance of what he has done for us. So the Lord's Supper is symbolic. Number three, the Lord's Supper is covenantal in character. The Lord's Supper is covenantal in character. I'm going to explain what that means. But first, a couple of verses. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then in our text, verse 20, Luke 22, 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this gets it back to a little bit what we're just talking about. What is a covenant? A covenant is God establishing a relationship with his creatures. That's what a covenant is. It is it's different from a contract because it's, it's, it's more unilateral than that. We don't come to the covenant on equal terms with God. He's vastly, infinitely superior to us. Nevertheless, he reaches down to us and through covenant seeks to establish a relationship with his people. But how can you have a relationship with God through the covenant? Well, the only way you can have a relationship is if whatever is hindering your relationship is removed out of the way. Well, what's hindering our relationship with God? Sin. Sin is hindering our relationship with God. Well, how do you get rid of sin? It has to be paid for. That's why, that's why the, the covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, were not instituted without blood. Let me read you this verse, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses... To all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Why? Is that the case? 
Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. Rebellion in your heart, conscious or unconscious, against the giver of life is a forsaking of that life which was given. And God cannot and he will not sweep sin under the rug as if it doesn't matter. He won't. You don't go to a courtroom expecting the judge to let every criminal off free because he's a merciful judge. You expect, the, you expect the judge to uphold the righteousness of the law. God will not sweep sin under the rug. Therefore, he has to deal with it. Therefore, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But Christ came to fulfill what the Old Testament law pointed to, but could not in reality accomplish. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. In other words, God gave the sacrificial system to the Jews, not because it forgave sins, but it it appointed them to the cost of what it would take to forgive sins. And it showed them, it showed them the seriousness of sin, and it, it, it gave them hearts and consciences that look forward to the day when they would truly, finally, fully be forgiven of sins. That's why in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it says, As it is, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus Christ came to fulfill what the Old Testament scriptures pointed to, but could not accomplish, the forgiveness of sins. The reconciliation of the world to God. To give what you could never possibly hope to earn. And that is right standing before God. He has has given it now as a gift of grace to those who believe in him. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. He has shown that he is the climax, the height of human history, of redemptive history. He is the point. Jesus said, it's about me. The Passover is about me. Everything in the Old Testament is literally about me. So the old has passed away and the new has come. That's what we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number four. The Lord's Supper focuses on atonement. The Lord's Supper focuses on atonement. This, this is, this is uh, very obvious. Atonement is the, uh, is the, the, pay, the payment for sin. It is, it, is the, it is our sins being atoned for, being dealt with, the debt, as it were, being paid. And that's obviously what the Lord's Supper focuses on, body, Jesus's Body being broken, his blood being poured out for us. 
You'd be surprised to know how many people in the past and how many people today reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. They call it divine child abuse. That's because they do not understand the seriousness of sin. But the substitutionary atonement is incredibly clear, especially from Isaiah 53, which is the clearest passage in the Bible concerning the work of Christ. And this is what it says, verse 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. Not his. Ours. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That was him. He was there in our place, in our stead. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone from his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus Christ was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He was the propitiation for our sins. That is, he turned away God's wrath by satisfying its demands. So that now God looks upon us in favor. The Lord's Supper focuses on atonement. Number five, the Lord's Supper is eschatological. The Lord's Supper is eschatological. What does that mean? Eschatology is the study of end times. That's all it means. Eschatology is the study of end times. It's from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end or last. When we say that the Lord's Supper is eschatological, what, we, what I mean is this. The Lord's Supper doesn't just point us to the past where Jesus died on the cross for our sins, though it does do that. The Lord's Supper doesn't just remind us of our present, how we stand in a present righteousness that is, is not ours, but has been given to us by grace through Jesus Christ, although it does do that. But also, in addition to the past and the present, the Lord's Supper points us to the future. Jesus, in verse 17 and 18, said, uh, Take this cup and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, As often as you eat and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is, the Lord's Supper is not just a remembrance of the past. It is an anticipation of the future. That is that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper eagerly awaiting the day. Because Jesus, he preset it. I will, I will not eat again until the kingdom of God comes. We eat the Lord's Supper in anticipation of the day when we will sit at table across from Jesus Christ himself. I've heard of some church traditions where as part of their Lord's Supper, they will say, 
perhaps next time with the Lord. As we partake of the Lord's Supper today, it might be the last time we take it without Jesus Christ. Because the next time we take it, it might be with him at the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper is eschatological. Finally, number six, the Lord's Supper is communal. The Lord's Supper is communal. The Lord's Supper is not a private meal. It's intended, it's intended for the gathered church, the gathered body of believers. And it is something that we as God's people partake of together. And it's, that's pretty clear from the instructions Paul gave concerning it when you gather. And it's, and it's clear, too, from just uh, the, the theological understanding of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper represents Christ's atonement, his sacrifice, the installation of the new covenant, which has done what? It has won for God a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So Christ did not, Christ did not come just to purchase a bunch of individuals. He came to purchase a people, a family, a body of believers, a church, a bride for himself. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we just don't celebrate what Christ has done for us, but we celebrate that Christ, what Christ has done in us and through us in making and bringing together a body of people from such different backgrounds, from such different cultures, from such different times and places all over the world and making them one in himself. The Lord's Supper is the communal meal for God's people. And this is the key here. The Lord's Supper is only for God's people. Some... It sounds exclusive to some. That's because it is. It is exclusive. How can you celebrate the atoning death of Christ on your behalf if, it's, if you've never believed in him, trusted him, and, have it, and had it applied on your behalf? You can't celebrate it. It means nothing to you. I would that it would mean everything to you right now if it doesn't already. I would that it, that would happen. But it's only for God's people that we share in the Lord's Supper because we celebrate what God has done in separating a people from the world for himself, a people bought, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus and, and Paul even told believers who celebrated the Lord's Supper with Wrong motives. He said, the reason some of you have died is because you have done this. Because you have not treated the Lord's Supper with the reverence it deserves. So I'm going to speak about that again briefly. But the Lord's Supper is a communal meal for God's people. And so I'm going to close now. We're going to sing a brief invitation uh, song of invitation, and I want to extend an invitation here. And then after the, Lord, after the invitation, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. But my invitation is this. The Lord's Supper is the gospel made visible. It's the gospel made visible. We are partaking of the body and the body broken for us, the blood shed for us. 
And so I invite, I invite you in here today, if there's anyone, I don't know, who has not truly had the blood of Jesus Christ applied to their heart where they're changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can look to Christ in faith today as the crucified, as the risen one, as the one who, the only one who can give the forgiveness of sins to bring you into right relationship with God, to bring you into his family of faith so that you will be his forever. I pray that will happen today. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you want to uh, come talk to me about how you can...